And uh, the last part of the civil law, he's going through the, the three feasts. And the first feast that we were looking at here is the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And we know that uh, from last week, we already looked at um, Feast of the Unleavened Bread, uh, starting with the Passover. And then after that, the feast would begin. But you can't have it without the Passover, because without that, there's no need for the unleavened bread. That's a part of the typology. And so uh, basically, uh, Israel was just commanded to keep three feasts every year perpetually. All the males were to appear in Jerusalem uh, three times a year for three different feast events, uh, which included seven total feasts and you know, spread out throughout those three. Uh, this was not for children of Israel in the wilderness. This was for when they got into the land. Uh, for the simple reason, they were living off of manna at this point. There, there, was no, there was no unleavened bread. There was no crops. There was no first fruits. There was none of those things. But he was saying, when you enter into the land, then this is what you will do. And so he's preparing them and giving them the insight into what they are going to do. Um, of course, they have already have kept one feast of unleavened bread. Can anybody tell me where that was? In Egypt, I mean, they, they ate no unleavened bread after the Passover. And of course, it wasn't the whole seven-week or seven-day uh, feast, but they did uh, already partake of that unleavened bread uh, in Egypt uh, when they were freed from bondage there. And so the three feasts that we're looking at, they coincide with Israel's harvest time uh, from the beginning all the way to the end. And like I said, even, uh, you know, with... The start of this first feast and Passover, the Passover marked a new beginning, a new year for Israel. And so before they had a different start of the year, and the Lord said, after that time in Egypt, this will be now the beginning of your year. And that is marked by the Passover every year. And that, of course, is typology where, you know, you're not, your life really doesn't begin until you've received Christ as your Savior. Uh, for every one of us, <clears throat> you know, you look at your life before I don't, I don't say you look at it as a write-off. I heard a preacher once say, don't waste your wasted years. That means you don't look at your past and say, all that is garbage and wasted. And No, even, even the garbage, you can learn something from it. Uh, but really, your life begins when Christ comes in your heart. And that's where everything begins with you. Uh, and really, you can't go much further <laughs> until he comes into your heart. Amen? <clears throat> so that is the new beginning. That's a typology of the calendar year. Um, of course, all these feasts, uh, they reveal different aspects of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the Feast of Unleavened Bread, of course, is Christ saving mankind from sin, uh, which is the real problem. Uh, the second one, the Pentecost, is Christ empowering the church for the harvest. And the third one is Christ's return to gather his people into his kingdom. And of course, we talked about that last time. That's the Feast of the Tabernacles. That will be the final feast uh, during the millennial reign. Only one feast will take place during that thousand years, and that will be the Feast of the Tabernacles. And all the nations will be required to come to Jerusalem to partake of that feast. And if they don't, the Bible tells us that the Lord will send a drought to their nation. And so he'll still have to punish them because men will still be foolish. Uh, but what they won't be are rebels. Amen? Because the devil's in the bottomless pit. And so there'll be no rebellion on earth, but there will be foolishness on earth. And there'll still be sin, and there'll be a need for people to be saved. Amen? 
And so that's why the feast continues, uh, keeping before them the memory of the sacrifices and, and the tabernacle of God coming down to men. And so I'm going to move on quickly here. Uh, understanding the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, we looked already at the Passover, letter A, uh, on this and the 14th. Of course, we know that this is the day that Jesus Christ was crucified. Uh, of course, Jesus had the, the, uh, the, the Lord's Supper with his disciples uh, after 6 p.m. on the Tuesday night. That was the start of the 14th. He was crucified the next day on the Wednesday morning, but that was also the 14th because it starts at 6, goes to 6 the next day. By the time 6 p.m. came on Wednesday, Jesus Christ had already been, uh, already gave his life, and they were coming to break his bones to make sure he died before 6 p.m., but he had already given up the ghost and given his life uh, for our sins. And, of course, they didn't want to leave him up on that cross during the next day, the Thursday, starting at 6 p.m. on Wednesday, because that was a high Sabbath day. It was a holy day, and they couldn't leave him on the cross during that time. And so I'm going to move on past the Passover, and we're going to continue right on where we are right now. And that's letter B, the Days of Unleavened Bread, uh, the 15th to the 21st of Nisan this month. And this is representing Christ's burial. So the Passover represents the crucifixion, how he died for our sins. The unleavened bread pictures the burial of our sins, the taking away of our sins. And I want to point out a couple things about this. Um, but first, let's just remember, we must recognize that the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are two different feasts with different yet related meanings. Okay, So you can't just say, oh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is the Passover. Or you can't just say that the Passover is the unleavened bread. Uh, they are two separate things. And that's important because I pointed out last week, Acts 12 verse 4, how it was the, the word Pascha was translated Easter in the English language, uh, representing the, the Christian holiday coming up on the Sunday, and how that they weren't going to let Peter, um, they were going to hold Peter in prison till after Easter. And that's because he didn't want to crucify him beforehand because the last time that happened, they got in a lot of trouble. There happened to be a resurrection take place, you know. And, uh, and so he was going to wait till after Easter. And we know that it couldn't be talking about the Passover because the Passover was already done. Because Peter was arrested in the days of unleavened bread. That was after the Passover. So unless he's talking about waiting a whole year <laughs> to, to bring him before the people, that's not the truth. Uh, it's talking about that weekend. Because the Holy Spirit translated Pascha into the proper uh, English word, which is Easter, which was understood by the King James translators as the Christian holiday that they would, or that memorial they would have every year, that you, uh, you'll keep every year. Uh, do you not? Does any Christian here not care about Easter? <laughs> no, every year you think about it. And, it, and it's different than Christmas. You know, Christmas, you're doing it because, okay, let's remember Christ's birth. But Easter is according to the calendar. So you could actually every year with very specific, uh, you know, detail, you know, keep it on that Sunday. But of course, you know, the days change, you know. And so on that day, the resurrection fell on the Sunday or on that week. Anyways, let's move on. 
So, uh, the unleavened bread represents Jesus taking away sin from the world. John 1.29, the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Uh, Romans 6, verse number 4, another good passage, it says, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. Now what does that mean? Does that mean when I get baptized in water and placed into the death? No, because if by the time you get in the water, you should have already been saved. <laughs> Amen. That means when you got saved, you were placed into the death of Christ. If you weren't, then you still got a debt to pay. Yeah. You understand that? So when it's talking about positionally being buried with Christ and, and buried with him by baptism into death, it's talking about 2,000 years ago when the father looked upon his son and saw the penalty of our sins being placed upon his son. So if you, are, you have been baptized into his death, when he looked at his son, he saw you there. Now, if he didn't see you there, then I'll tell you what the problem is. You still owe death. <laughs> you understand that? So every born-again believer, the day you got saved, it's just like Jesus Christ saw you placed into the Lord Jesus, or, or the Father saw you, placed into the Lord Jesus Christ at his death. Because you need to pay the payment. (laughs) There's only one wage for sin, and that is death. And so if Jesus didn't do that for you, then you have to do that. And that's an eternal separation from God. And so that buried with him by baptism into death, that word baptism is not referring to water baptism. (laughs) That's how we picture it. But the truth of it, the doctrine of it, is the fact that you've been placed into the Lord Jesus Christ and you've been buried into him. And that's why the Bible in Ephesians chapter 2 talks about how that you're already risen with him in the heavenlies. Well, you say, I'm not up there yet, I'm still down here, (laughs) you know. But to the Lord, you're not. So if you're born again, you were placed into Christ at his death. You were buried with him, but you also were risen with him. You see, you're already positionally in that place, uh, spiritually, amen? The only problem is your soul and body haven't caught up yet. And that will, that will catch up, amen, it's guaranteed. And so anyways, it says, So we're buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. There's doctrines today that's being taught among Christians that if you're saved, you don't, there's really no change that needs to take place. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says if you're a born-again believer and you've been placed into his death, that you are raised up in a new life. You're a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so it's important to understand that. And the Feast of the Unleavened Bread is picturing that very truth. And I'll point out some of those things as we go through here. Uh, now, in this passage in, in the Exodus, it, it doesn't say a whole lot. It just says these three feasts, then it mentions them, it lists them. But he had already given them some information back in Exodus chapter 12. And so I'm going to read that to you in verse number 14. It says, On this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and you shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, you shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. Even the first day you shall put away leaven out of your houses. For whosoever eateth leavened bread from the first day unto the seventh day, 
that soul shall be cut off from Israel. And in the first day, there shall be an holy convocation. And the seventh day, there shall be an holy convocation to you. No manner of work shall be done in them, save that which every man must eat, that only may be done of you. And ye shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For in this selfsame day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore shall you observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at even, you shall eat unleavened bread until the one and twentieth day of the month at even. Seven days shall there be no leaven found in your houses. For whosoever eateth that which is leavened, even that soul shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Do you think he's taking this seriously here? See, now we know this is just typology. This is a shadow of the substance. There's no power in leaven, nor is there sin in you eating bread, white bread or rye bread or whatever else, because all those breads that you eat are leavened bread. But for these seven days, they had to remove it out of their homes as a picture of how Jesus Christ, the Passover, the perfect lamb, died, and now he was in the grave, taking away our sin, only to raise victoriously on the first day of the week. Amen? And so, so you shall eat nothing leavened, in all your habitation shall you eat unleavened bread. Uh, so, number one, I'm going to talk about the high Sabbath days just a little bit here. I'm, I'm no expert on any of this stuff. But this, I think, the Lord is really trying to get across to us. The high Sabbath days. It would start and finish with high Sabbath days. That high Sabbath day, the first one started on the Thursday, which really was the Wednesday at 6 p.m. <laughs> Amen. Isn't that confusing? <laughs> you know, 6 p.m. on Wednesday, that was the, the 16th of Nisan, right? It was the 15th. 15th of Nisan. And so that was the high holy day. It was a Thursday. So here you have an example of how a Sabbath day can actually happen within the week, not always on a Saturday. So when you meet these Sabbath worshipers out there that say, oh, you've got to keep the Sabbath, then you better watch them on this day and go to them, hey, why aren't you keeping the high book convocation? This is a Sabbath, amen. But they don't do that because they just regard Sabbath as, as, or Saturdays as Sabbath, which they are to Israel, but not to us, amen. That isn't something that we ought to be concerned about. It's been fulfilled in Christ. It's a shadow of things to come. And so, uh, in verse 16, In the first day there shall be an holy convocation, and the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation to you. No manner of work shall be done in them, save that which every man must eat, that only may be done of you. So, it was by this day that Jesus was removed from the cross before 6 p.m. So, when this high Sabbath started, Jesus Christ was already in the grave, already in the tomb. He was already placed there, rested in that tomb. And so there was nobody working. Uh, you know, that would have been wrong for them to get him off the cross on that Sabbath day, to prepare a tomb for him and so forth. You weren't supposed to do any of that kind of stuff on a Sabbath day. That's why when the ladies uh, went and got spices to anoint the Lord Jesus Christ, they didn't do it on the Thursday. <clears throat> they didn't do it on the Saturday because that was a Sabbath. They bought their spices on the Friday because that's when they could buy and sell. So they only had one day that week where they could go buy the spices to go anoint the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? 
So that's interesting to see because they were all packed in between Sabbaths there, all right? And they had it by Sunday morning. And so the word Sabbath just simply means cease from labor. just means to cease. So whenever somebody says keep the Sabbath, say, what am I supposed to cease from? And they say, well, I'll cease from work. Well, I'd like to see them all do that. You know, some of them just regard it as, well, I go to church on Sabbath day, on Saturdays. Well, that's not the typical meaning of the word Sabbath in the Bible. Sabbath was, you weren't allowed to do anything on a Sabbath day. We had the example of how with Moses, the one man went out and picked up a stick on the Sabbath day, and the Lord said, put him to death, showing the, 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 uh, the intensity of that law. <clears throat> That's why that wasn't, it's not a religious ritual for us to follow. It was a type of how that Jesus Christ is going to fulfill the work needed for our salvation. So it was a type of how free our salvation is. That's what Sabbath is, all right? So those of you that are born again, you're living in a continual Sabbath because you've never had to work for your salvation. It talks about, for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So basically, you have entered into that rest where you have ceased from works for your eternal salvation. And that's what Sabbath pictured in the Old Testament. So for us to go back now and try to keep all these Sabbath days, you know, is for us to disregard the fulfillment of those Sabbath days. And that's why many of those that do hold to Sabbath days believe in a work salvation. So it's interesting, those that say cease from work are actually working for their salvation. That's pretty messed up. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so Jesus Christ did the work for us in removing our sins from us. And uh, I have the passage here. I don't know where it's going to fit in. Let me read it to you. John 19, verse 30. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day. For that Sabbath day was an high day. Besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first, because he wasn't dead yet, and the other, which was crucified with him, the two thieves. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. And that's because he had already given up the ghost. He'd already freely sacrificed his life uh, for our sins. And so uh, it just fits perfectly. Like I said, they were supposed to break the legs. They didn't. They disobeyed that order. And then they shoved a spear in his side, which they weren't supposed to do, and yet both of those things were fulfillment of prophecies. So the two disobedient things that the Roman soldiers did actually fulfilled the prophecies, making it even more incredible that these prophecies were fulfilled that night. Amen? And so, letter A, the meanings for this week, uh, the Savior's atonement for sin, the penalty of sin. Uh, that's what it says. He taketh away the sin of the world. All sin was laid upon Christ in his crucifixion, and all sin was atoned for in his death to be removed in his burial. Amen? So he's saying, I'm taking it away. I'm removing it. Uh, letter B, sanctification of the believer. This is the power of sin. So this, this week, this unleavened bread week, 
seven days, which is always the picture of completion or uh, perfection, uh, the number seven, it's finished, right? The world was created in seven days, right? Or six days, seventh day he rested. And so uh, the power of sin. So basically this unleavened bread week, you could say, oh, it's talking about how perfect Jesus was. Well, <clears throat> that was typified in the Passover, in being that pure Passover lamb. Jesus Christ, Christ was typified by, by sacrificing a lamb without blemish. All right? So the unleavened bread, what is that typifying? Well, sure, you could say it's typifying the perfection of Christ, but it means more than that. Not only that Jesus was perfect, but that he was there to take away our sin. So the seven days has to do with us. He's saying, you take the leaven out of your homes. Amen? So it's referring to the people. This is the effect of the Passover. This is what the Passover has accomplished in your life in taking away your sins. Okay? And so it says in, in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Purge out therefore the old leaven, talking to us, that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. So there you see a New Testament passage that's equating Jesus Christ to the Passover sacrifice. And you also see a passage here relating the unleavened bread, relating it to our personal lives. So this unleavened bread week, it knocks out of the park these guys that say it doesn't matter if you continue in sin after you're saved. It's something you are supposed to change. God commands you to deal with your sin. I'm not saying you're going to be perfect after salvation. You may mess up quite a bit. But all I know is this, that's no excuse to continue in it. <laughs> you know, we're supposed to deal with our sin after salvation. So in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, the Passover, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. All right? So there's that swap. He becomes a sin. He takes the punishment. We get freed from the penalty of sin. Titus 2.11 says this, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. See, Jesus Christ is our great God, by the way. <laughs> Amen. And so right there it says that same grace that brought you salvation, Passover, is that same grace that is going to teach you to deny ungodliness and to live soberly and righteously in this world, in this present evil world. So is this not some pie-in-the-sky uh, perspective here this is something that's very practical where the Lord is saying I want you to be different I want you to remove the sin out of your life this is, a, this is something that grace came to, to give you the power to do not just to get saved and that's where some people say oh as long as I'm saved that's all that matters <laughs> no that is, that is great I'm glad you're saved I'm glad you'll be in heaven one day but that grace that you receive for salvation 
also teaches you that you've got to be right with God. And you've got to be holy and righteous. Amen? You can't get away from that. That's scripture through and through. I mean, throughout the Bible you see that. Uh, then it goes on to say the next verse after it talks about the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. What's happening today with our churches, we're not really peculiar. Peculiar is Lord pulling in a certain group of people above all the rest of the world so that he can use them to be an instrument towards the rest. Israel was supposed to be a peculiar people, a drawn in a special treasure above all the treasures. You guys have treasures at home? You got a jewelry box? Do you have a ring that means more to you than the others? <laughs> That's what the Lord says I'm trying to do to you. I'm trying to purify you so that you can be a peculiar people. This is what the local churches are supposed to be. This is what we're supposed to be. He says, I've gathered you together so that you can become a peculiar people so that I can reach the world through your testimony. That's what it's about. Unleavened bread, <laughs> you know. This is important because I want to get down to even some of the truths about the Lord's Supper by the end of this lesson. So I want you to catch what I'm saying here. So Romans six fourteen it says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Amen? So under law, sin will have dominion. But under grace, sin has no dominion. Now what does that mean, sin has no dominion? What does the word dominion mean? What's the root word of dominion? <laughs> dominate. Sin will not dominate your life because you're under grace. Isn't that opposite of what people are teaching today? They're saying because we're under grace, sin doesn't matter. The Bible says no, because you're under grace, sin won't dominate your life. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Because it teaches you to be holy in this present evil world that we live in. All right. Uh, good verse to look at uh, is 1 John 3, 8. He that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. No, no. Jesus came to save me. No. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Think about that. We water it down to such a state where I've heard groups talk about salvation and they don't even mention sin. <laughs> it has nothing to do with sin. Just, oh, you just trust Jesus. You go to heaven, have peace and love. and you know? <laughs> It's just stroke, stroke, stroke. No, the reason why you're lost is because of sin. Yes, and the reason why people remain lost is because they're in their sins. Jesus told that to the Pharisees. He says, you think you're the child of children of Abraham. But he says, you don't believe me, you don't receive my words. So he goes on to say, you will die in your sins. Yes. You will die in them. <laughs> if you die in them, you have to pay the price for them. Yeah. All right? And so he that committed sin is of, the de is of the devil. So you say, well, preacher, I've had a bad habit and I committed sin. <laughs> you know, am I of the devil? Well, I hope not. The word commit there. It's the, the meaning of that word isn't a punctiliar word where it's just talking about a one-time sin. 
what it's talking about is a lifestyle. It's talking about a continual action. So someone that continually commits sin and they never stop and they're never convicted and they're never corrected by the Lord is of the devil. Well, preacher, I don't know if I'd say that. I'm not. The Bible is. (laughs) The Bible's saying it. It says, For the devil sinneth from the beginning, and for this purpose the Son of God has manifested that it might destroy the works of the... You know what I think we need to do? Preach more messages like this. Because I think Christians are getting comfortable in the fact that they can sin because they're saved. You know? It says, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. That means if you have regeneration, that means if Christ is in your heart and you are born again, you will not live a life of continual habitual sin like it's somehow a normal state of life and it's okay for me to do that. If that's the way you think, then the problem is you probably never had Christ save you in the first place. You, you're, you're, you're playing the game. <laughs> I don't know about you, when I got saved, folks, I had stuff I need to work through. And you know what? It didn't just all f- drop right off the start. But I'll tell you something. The Lord changed me from day one. <laughs> day one. It was a shedding of these things. And there's no way that I could continue in them. I remember I tried. I remember I was tempted to go. I remember one time I was in a rock band. And here I was saved, already going to church. And my band said, oh, we got one more gig we need to do. And I just, I mean, this was early on for me. You know, so I'm not, pre, I'm not a pastor at this point, all right, okay? <laughs> just a young, stupid believer. And I, I, didn't, I didn't say, I had a problem saying no. So I went and did it. And I was so under conviction. There was just no way that I could continue in that. There's just no way I could have gotten back to the same old habitual lifestyle of rock music and so forth. I was so under conviction that I did that one time and after that it says, I'm done. That's how heavy it was on my heart. That was a sign that I was regenerated. And if you never had that over your sin, then ask yourself, have you truly been born again? Because when Christ comes in, and the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your heart, He will convict you of your sin. You know, I remember smoking cigarettes. I got, you know, I quit, and then I started again, and I was miserable. I was miserable the whole time. I, 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 but I allowed myself to get addicted, right? So it took a while. But I was miserable the whole time, and I'd cry to God, help me, God, help me, you know? I was such a, just such an idiot, you know? But that's where I was. And that's where a lot of people are when they come to church. So that's why we don't just jump on people because they do something wrong. You give them time because, you know, if they're saved, they're not going to stay there. If they're going to stay there and they're going to get worse, they're probably not born of God. Amen? It's truth. I've had people tell me they were saved and they weren't. People do it all the time. Oh, I had an experience. The why have I never seen one evidence of Christ in you? One evidence. I don't know what you want from the church. <laughs> but I'll tell you something. You've got to make sure that you've received Christ as your Savior. That is a very specific time. I talked to a couple of boys. We bought, Benjamin bought a car this week. A real hot rod. Uh, <laughs> and the two guys that sold it to us, 
they were East Indian, but they were gone, went to a Christian church. So I asked them, I says, are you guys born again? Well, we, we, we came from a Christian family. And I, okay, I left that for a moment and I talked to the other guy. He said the same thing. I came from a Christian family. We had, you know, three families back already. We were already, and I just, finally I just said, let me explain something. And I shared to John chapter one, you know, how it says, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of man, nor of the will of flesh, but of God. It says, your family can't save you. <laughs> it's a personal regeneration in your heart. You have to make that decision. It doesn't matter how great your family was. It doesn't matter how bad your family was. That has no impact on whether you're saved or not. It's an individual thing that happens when you hear the gospel and you get saved. Now they still said they were saved. I'm just going to take their word for it, you know. And so, whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. So every child of God has the seed of God within them. And the Bible says it's a seed that remaineth. It never leaves you. So you'll never go to hell because he's not going to send his seed, the Holy Spirit of God, into hell. You're already sealed already into the day of redemption. Amen? So, so we have to deal with it. We have to deal with sin and we have to follow the prompting of the Spirit of God. We have to pro- follow the prompting of that conviction in our heart when he convicts us of doing something wrong. We have to deal with it or we'll be miserable until the Lord spanks us bad. Yeah. You know, and he will spank us bad. He's not going to let us get away with it. You know, he's a good father, faithful father. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's all he wants. He just wants us to confess and forsake and be clean. And as he leads us, deal with it step by step. You're not going to be perfect. You're going to mess up till Jesus comes. But when he starts pointing things out, you better listen. Listen. So, sanctification, that's a positional, it's progressive, it's practical, The legal position as a sinner has been removed, but the practice of sin is progressively dealt with until Jesus comes. Um, So it seems to relate to the removal of sins of the people, the unleavened bread. And so we need to keep that in mind here. The second thing is security of the believer, the presence of sin. 1 John 5.11 says this, And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son, he that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Jesus did not just put away sin while he went to the grave. See, this is the interesting thing about having the weak. That, okay, it makes sense. Why wouldn't you have the un- feast of the unleavened bread from the Thursday to the Sunday? Because that's when Jesus rose from the grave. But isn't it interesting? That's not how the Lord put it. He says you're going to have it for seven days. So he started on the Thursday, Feast of Unleavened Bread, through the weekend. On the Sunday, Jesus Christ rose from the grave. Oh, it must be over. Nope. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread continued after Jesus Christ rose from the grave. Teaching us that 
Sin isn't just dealt with when Jesus went to the cross. When Jesus rose, it was still dealt with. And if Jesus has risen, we still deal with it. (laughs) We continue on. And that seven days pictures a complete dealing with sin, a complete taking away of sin. When, when it says, uh, behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, it's not just saying for a little while. It's not saying just a little bit of sin. It's talking about all the sin completely forever. That's what the whole plan is. Now we know that after we get saved, we still feel the effects of sin. Do you think the Lord knows that? Do you think he expects you to be without sin after you get saved? (laughs) Well, it's impossible. If that were true, then what he would do is he would just take you up to heaven. But this is what he did. He left you here on earth with your stinking thinker. (laughs) Amen. You think if you want me to have a perfect life, Lord, why didn't you change this thing? But he says, no, no, I'm not going to change that like this. But I will change that as you submit and as re- I renew your mind. That's called progressive sanctification. So this is all a part of God's plan. His plan wasn't that once you get saved, that somehow the day after you're going to be without sin completely. But what he's saying is this, this whole taking away of sin process, the seven days, which means the complete taking away of sin When the Lord's plan is done, we will stand faultless before his glory, the Bible says, in the face of God. No sin. But for a while, from the time we get saved, you know, throughout our practical life, as we're allowing him to renew us, we're going to have to wrestle with sin a little while. Until Jesus comes. And then we're going to see him as he is, And immediately our sin will be taken away completely. Amen. So it's really a picture of how it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's it's promised. But you have to deal with it for a while. (laughs) Amen. And so we enjoy the rest of Christ's sacrifice for sin. And we can look forward to the eternal rest with Christ. The two high Sabbath days. I got this Sabbath day because I know now my salvation has been dealt with within Christ. The next Sabbath day pictures how I know that I'm going to live a life, an eternity, without the presence of sin. Amen. That's what the seven days reference is there. Leaven was forbidden to be offered to the Lord. In, in every sacrifice, even, even uh, throughout the year, didn't matter what sacrifice you'd give, you could never offer a leavened sacrifice to the Lord. You see in Leviticus 2 verse 9 it says, and the priest shall take from the meat offering a memorial thereof and shall burn it upon the altar. It is an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. And that which is left of the meat offering shall be Aaron's and his sons. It is a thing most holy of the offerings of the Lord made by fire. No meat offering. And here meat is talking about grains and bread and not the real meaning of meat, which is steak and, you know. But no meat offering, which ye shall bring unto the Lord shall be made with leaven. For ye shall burn no leaven, nor any honey in any offering of the Lord made by fire. So it matters how we do what we do as well. We seem to live in a day that says our methods 
are not important as long as we get the results. But the Lord takes note of everything we do and the way we do it is important to the Lord. And that goes to us here in this church too. So when we baptize, we do that a certain way. Some of you say, well, what's the big deal? What's the... Well, it's very important. You look at the, the, the Old Testament examples, the Lord said if they, wouldn't, if they would have leaven in their house on those seven days, they'd be cut off from the nation. It's not a picture of losing your salvation, but what it is, the children of Israel, what they were, were someone that was supposed to be used for a purpose to win the world. So he's saying, if this is not what you're wanting to do and you have leaven in your life, he says, you will not fulfill your purpose. You'll be cut off from God's purpose for your life. And it's true. Many Christians are floundering and they're not doing God's will and some of them never will. They'll meet God like that, not doing the will of God for their life because they choose to have leaven. They allow it instead of dealing with it, as the Lord told us to. And so, um, let's see here. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 to 9 says, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump. This is the church discipline passage, by the way. So this is the, the, the pattern that we have when we look at the church as well. Not just the church, but your family. Uh, maybe we should apply it to our nation too, but they won't. <laughs> Amen. But we have to apply it to what we can. What's in my control is the boundaries of this church. What's in my control is the boundaries of my family. And so I cannot have leaven within my home, within my church. Otherwise, I will lose my purpose for God. And so it goes on to say here, uh, for even Christ, our Passover sacrifice for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So he's not talking about actually eating bread here it's a typology of some things that he's pointing out here he says i wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators and he goes on to explain how that we ought not to hang around with and eat meals and fellowship with those that are living blatantly in a lifestyle of sin because what's happening is you will begin to be leavened with their leaven (laughs) amen and I know that's not popular today. People, oh, yeah, you're not loving. Well, no, I mean, I'm no good to them if I allow leaven in my life. If I keep the leaven out, then I can be a better help to them than if I go fellowship with them and let the leaven in. You understand that? So I'm actually loving them more by not fellowshipping with them. And those of you that think it's better just to go hang out with people because that's loving them, you're actually hurting them. And you're hurting yourself, you'll hurt your family, and you'll hurt your church as well. And so there's a couple of things he talks about here, letter A, malice. This is ill will or desire to injure. <laughs> this could not be the children of God. <laughs> this could not be our church members of all people to actually desire to injure somebody's reputation or gossip or hurt them. Or Yes, it is. We've seen it. Even in from 12 months from this point back, I could point to several situations of malice. That's 11. You're involved in that kind of stuff. That's 11, and you will be leavened. Yeah. When you become leavened, you're going to leaven other people. See, it's not a good thing. 
So purge out the old leaven, it says. Ephesians 4.31, that's why the Lord says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Evil speaking with all malice. This is, this is actually a, a, um, a progression here. The root of bitterness springing up. Wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking. From the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaketh. Amen? With all malice. So it ends up you actually wanting to hurt somebody through talking to others and tearing them down, making them look bad to others, maybe to lift yourself up, whatever it is. It's a very common tactic when you're not doing right. Amen? By the way, if you do right, you're not so concerned about that. It's usually people that are doing wrong that are trying to tear down people that are maybe doing better so that they don't look as bad as them. So that's when malice comes in. There's bitterness or offenses that come in because of that. So you think about this. Leaven, malice. Then it also says malice and wickedness. Depravity, iniquity. It's an outflow of sin through a person's actions. It's not just witchcraft and all these things that wouldn't be seen in the church, wickedness can easily be seen through a Christian's life. Sometimes Christians can be very wicked, <laughs> you know, and that ought not be. So there's two, and also hypocrisy is another one. Luke 12, verse 1, it says, In the meantime, when they were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they trod one upon another, he began to say unto his disciples, First of all, beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Pretending to be something you're not, that's what the Pharisees did a lot. <laughs> they pretended. They were inwardly dead. They were inwardly bitter and angry and wrathful with murderous thoughts. But outwardly, they had on the religious look. Amen? So they were putting on a mask. They were acting is what it is. The word hypocrisy means acting under a feigned part. You're feigning something as not true. That, that isn't true. 1 Peter 2, 1 says... Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings. All of those things go together. When you see one, you usually see all of them. You see all of them. Matthew 23, 28. Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. When you're really who you really are, amen. Not your not your church person, you know. I come to church. Oh, you're looking pretty good. Well, what are you like in your most comfortable setting, with the people that will hear what you say and keep it secret? Maybe. That's who you are. That's the heart coming out. But then we know when to put on the show. Oh, Sunday morning. We're at each other's throats until we leave church on the way in. We're yelling at each other, walk in the door. <laughs> Do you see my glow? <laughs> First Timothy 4.1 says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in latter times some shall depart from the faith, 
giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. So you're going to have people that will come into the church that have already been seduced by Satan, departed from the faith, and yet putting on a show, speaking lies to people. Wow, you think you ought to be careful? You think we ought to find a look at the scripture says, you know, Paul said, for three years I cease not with tears to warn you night and day. Grievous wolves shall enter in. (laughs) Well, that must be the first century because it's not happening now. (laughs) Oh, folks, I'm going to tell you, as a pastor, there's not a week that goes by I do not keep my eyes open for wolves and disciples that are trying to pull people to themselves. And just whisper sweet little nothings in their ear, you know, to pull them over to themselves. They want to make that person a disciple of themselves, not a disciple of Christ. Our goal here is to bring people in. And when we teach them, we're saying we want you to love Jesus, to love this church, and to love the people of this church. And if your message is not that, you're one of these people. You're a grievous wolf. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's a dangerous thing. Dangerous. I'm not saying you don't get your nose out of joint sometimes. It happens. Somebody just, you know, (laughs) they say the wrong thing or they bother you. You may have a conversation about that. But it surely will not be a lifestyle of constantly hiding your wickedness and hypocrisy. But he says we ought to be exercising the unleavened truth of sincerity, purity, of being a genuine believer. That's why Philippians 1.10 says that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere without offense to the day of Christ. So it's interesting how sincerity is connected to being without offense. Because when people take an offense, all of a sudden the sincerity is gone. And that's when the hypocrisy comes in. Because I'm hiding myself. I secretly have an offense. Instead of what the scriptures say, if someone has done you wrong, the Bible says go to them. Because you love them, you care about them, you want to make sure you have a clear uh, fellowship with them. If they've done something to you, you ought to go to them. And say, hey, this is what you did. And I don't want our relationship to be hurting this way. Otherwise, it's just hypocrisy. Just putting on a show every time you see them, you know. So sincerity. Another thing that Levin pictures in the scripture is false doctrine, literally. Um, That's why it says, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Truth. So truth has a lot to do with being unleavened. You know, and lies and deceit have a lot to do with being leavened. All right. Now, I'm giving you some foundational truth here because this impacts the church. This this thought process I'm giving you impacts even our Lord's Supper. You see, and that's why I say, Pastor, why do you do things like this? Why aren't you more tolerant? Why don't you have an open communion? Why don't you just? Well, that's because of this. You see, you can't just do that. Um. Matthew 16, 11, How is it that you didn't understand that I speak it 
not to you concerning bread, that you should be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then understood they how that he bade them not to be aware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So Jesus, when he was warning them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're wondering, we're not supposed to eat their bread? <laughs> no, he said, you ought not, you ought to be careful of their doctrine. That's what it's talking about there. The teaching that the Pharisee taught was leavened. It wasn't truth. And this is why we practice a close or a closed communion. You understand? And I know other Baptists, they just, anybody comes in, whatever. But folks, the Lord's Supper pictures a time of unbroken fellowship with the people of God and Christ. The local assembly and its head, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if someone does not have right doctrine in the church, they cannot be in communion with that body. If they have malice, they are not in communion with that body. If they, uh, what are they <laughs> you know, have wickedness in their life, they are not in communion. So you ought not partake. Well, I shouldn't say that. You ought to partake, but you've got to get right. So never is a time where it says, don't partake of the Lord's Supper. Actually, the command is, this do ye, do ye, do it. But it says, do it right. <laughs> so it's never a time to say, well, I'm not going to partake today because I'm not right with God. <laughs> the Lord will look at you. So what you're saying is, you don't want to partake in communion with the church because you want to stay in your sin. <laughs> yeah. You want to stay in your sin. You want to stay in that broken fellowship. You want to continue in that false doctrine. And so that's why we do the things the way we do them. You know, number three, leaven multiplies and infects the whole. We know that 1 Corinthians 5, 6, it says, Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And so that's an important doctrine that is teaching us in the church that if you allow a little leaven within your congregation, it will expand and grow. Now, that's where we have to watch. And not everybody that has errors, we're going to jump on them and say, get out of here. You know, because we have people, I know there's people that have come to our church and have, that have been with us that believe way different, but they're not members. And so what you do is you say, okay, let them stay under the preaching of God's word so the Lord can change their heart and doctrine. Now, if, if they got their heels dug in, and they're going to continue in their false doctrine, and they're going to start reaching out. That's where the Bible says, Mark them which cause divisions contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. So that's where they publicly become marked. So there's some people I keep an eye on, and I say, you know, these people, their doctrine is, is not good, but they're not hurting anybody. They're not spreading it around. They're not trying to cause problems with it. So I'm going to keep my eye on them and see if they're actually going to start changing and give themselves to the doctrine of the church. And if they, if they do start telling people things, that's when I'll start the process of maybe having a men's meeting. Saying, guys, this is what I've noticed. Mark it. You know, even then I may not say kick them out. I'll say, hey, as long as we're in tune here, and we're careful, we might be able to help 
Maybe not the husband, maybe the wife, maybe the kids. I don't know, but I have a hard time just throwing everybody out, you know what I mean? Because there's such a, uh, there's such a potential with some of these people. You don't want to just throw everybody out, but you also don't want to sacrifice the church for it. So it's a, it's a fine line. And so that's why I need your prayers. And that's why you got to give me a break, man. <laughs> like, there's not one person in this room that would like, what I, like to do what I have to do here. You would not want to have to do and make the decisions I need to make. And I guarantee you, if you're already against me in making my decisions, you'd be a terrible pastor here. You'd be a terrible pastor. And it wouldn't take long, this church, God's hand would be off of it. Amen? It's a fine line. And so I need your help, you know. I need your prayers. I need your support. I need you to get behind me on things. I don't do things just for the sake of looking cool or trying to be a Baptist or whatever else thing is. <laughs> She's laughing. You don't look cool. <laughs> David's always there to lift me up. Amen. <laughs> no, she didn't say that. <laughs> um, so leaven multiplies and it affects. So the Lord's Supper, I'm going to give you a couple things will be done. So the Lord's Supper would require unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine. Never once in Scripture is the, even the word wine used in relation to the Lord's Supper. And the word wine can refer to an alcoholic beverage, or it can refer to just simply the, the juice of the grape, which is the good stuff. Amen? <laughs> like, I like the taste of grape juice. And it's good for thy stomach's sake, to Timothy. Amen? It's not talking about alcoholic wine. And so... <clears throat> Number one, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper with his disciples on the night of the Passover, Passover feast. I just want to give this to you. We already talked about it, but Matthew 26, 18. And he said, Go into this city to such a man and say unto him, The master saith, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. And so his whole intention was to go and observe the Passover that evening. But something happened while they were observing the Passover. The Lord instituted something new. And that's what we call the Lord's Supper. Now, number two, Jesus dismissed Judas before he broke the bread for the Lord's Supper. So, open communion would mean Judas can stay. Closed communion means that Judas has to leave. So what took place here, John 13, verse 27, you've got to do a little Bible study to figure it out because you've got to pull together synoptic accounts to see the timeline. But John 13, 27, And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. So Satan came into Judas when, he, when Jesus said, The one that's going to dip when I dip, that's the one. So he dipped when he dipped. And Satan entered into Judas at that point. And then G Jesus told Judas, go do what you're going to do. And he put him out. John 13, 30. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out. And it was night. So that he didn't hang around. The moment it happened, he took the sop. He says, go and do without quickly. He got up, walked out. Matthew 26, 26. And as they were eating, 
This is referring to after. In fact, there's a, there's a discourse that Jesus Christ gives after, Jesus, after Judas leaves. And then at the end of that discourse, this, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. So this is why I'll tell you that I do not believe in an open communion. I don't believe we ought to just open it up for everybody. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying that those that do are evil. <laughs> I'm just saying, according to Scripture, Jesus made sure that everybody in that room was in fellowship with him. Was saved and in fellowship with him. And I know it's harder to do this because it gets me in trouble. <laughs> I've had people in mad, mad at me over the years because they just thought they ought to partake of communion. But folks, you're not doing them any favors by not teaching them the real reason why we partake of the Lord's Supper. Amen. It's not just a time to get together and have a religious ritual. That's not what it is. It's a, something we do to unify ourselves, to commune with one another and Christ at the same time, putting ourselves into perfect fellowship. Folks, usually when I have a communion supper, it's, it's only members. What we may do, uh, I always say this, we can practice close communion, but we're so close, it's closed. <laughs> in other words, if there was someone from another Baptist church that believed like we did, that was right with God and in fellowship with the Lord, and we knew that, I have no problem with inviting them into our communion. But that is so narrow. Rarely happens. And most people that believe like that won't even do it. They'll say, I'll just wait until I commune with my church. Which is fine. You know? And so that's why we practice a closed communion. So if you're here, you're a member of the church, and you're right with God, it's not even just being a member, because if you're a member and you're you're doing things behind the back of someone in this church or hurting somebody, gossiping or whatever, tearing people down, you ought not partake until you get right. Because the Bible says that there's a, there's a consequence. He says, for this reason, many among you are weak and sickly and many sleep. That's talking about death. Because they partook of the supper unworthily. Now, if it's just open, how is it that you can partake unworthily? You understand that? So learning what we've learned from the unleavened bread, learning what God's purpose is in that, learning what leaven represents, you know, hypocrisy, sin, uh, um, false doctrine, all these things. How could you just say, oh, it doesn't matter. As long as we've got the element that's unleavened, that's what's... No, this is a picture of what this is supposed to be. Amen? It's not just about this. Now, we're going to have unleavened bread. <laughs> but this is a type or a picture of how the church is supposed to be. Without hypocrisy. Without false doctrine. Unified together. One mind. One mouth glorifying God. One spirit striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's a church that has communion. You get what I'm saying there? <clears throat> this isn't something I just thought of last week. <laughs> this is doctrine, and there's some that'll hold it even tighter than this. Way, way tighter. But I believe scripturally I could hold to what I just told you here. Scripturally I could hold that. 
but I could not in good conscience just open it up. No matter where you're from, no matter what you believe, no matter (laughs) what you're doing, just partake, because I'm not supposed to be the one that judges this. Well, as a shepherd, I have a hard time believing that I'm not going to be held accountable for how we do things in this church. I will be held accountable. So, unless you're willing to stand in the way and say, "Uh, Lord, uh, I'll take Pastor Friesen's uh, consequences. (laughs) There's not one of you that says, I'll do that. So then help me do what I do. Pray for me. Help me do what I do. Because it surely isn't easy. And folks, I've done this for a long, long time. And I've had to look in the eyes of many people and explain this to them. And where they never believe what I said. Doesn't mean I change, you know. But let's be kind about it, you know. Let's be good about it. But I think that's how we got to go forward as the, as the uh, church of the Lord. And so if we're supposed to learn something from the lessons of the wilderness... Let's learn this. Let's apply this to the local church. Because he gave us a great lesson on what leaven is in the scripture. And what is unleavened. You know? And how that should apply to us individually as Christians and as a church.